Over the past two and a half centuries, there have been three monumental tidal shifts that shook up the Jewish people and caused us to re-examine and ponder who we are as a nation and what we stand for. In the 19th century, we saw the emancipation of the Jews in Europe. They were allowed out of the ghettos, allowed to participate in the greater world. And of course, in the 20th century, we've had the Holocaust and the birth of the state of Israel. Now, each of these seismic shifts brought about fundamental changes to our nation. Last episode, we learned about the emancipation in the early 1800s and the changing status of the Jews among the nations, and of course, the movements and the choices that sprung up from this opportunity, namely the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, and the Reform. Uh, These movements, they sought to capitalize on the new opportunities and draw the nation towards modernity, even if it meant abandoning the traditions and the observance of the past. There were a variety of opposing movements to shield and conserve tradition and fend off these incursions, and a particular one of them will be the subject of this episode. So you have two sides. You have the traditional camp and the innovators, the Enlightenment, the Hastal and the Reform, and they're locked in a turf war uh, for the Jews of Europe. Each one of them is vying for the hearts, for the minds of the nation, and indeed they're fighting really for the future of the Jewish people. You have many Jews who are living in shtetls, in small Jewish settlements, and they were essentially up for the taking. And each side is competing heavily to access these Jews. On one hand, you have the Reform and the Haskalah, and they would talk a lot about the idea of the ghetto Jews, and they would denigrate these backwards, obsolete, arcane, archaic Jews of the past, Jews that are not willing to step forward into modernity. And this was a very powerful force that was unleashed to try to court and to woo and to attract as many Jews as possible into their camp. And indeed, in the 19th century, they were very successful at that. On the other side... In that 19th century, you see a very unique group of Torah giants, of great leaders that inspired, that educated the masses, and that formed movements of their own that resisted and fought back against the reform and against the Haskalah, each in their own region and each in their own particular way. And I think it's particularly noteworthy that uh, that each one of these great Torah leaders deeply understood the character and the nature of their constituency, and they were able to, to moderate and to tailor their message for the specific people they're trying to influence. Now, one such individual, a man and a leader of a movement that is perhaps the most dominant of those counter-movements to reform in Haskalah uh, today, uh, a unique, remarkable, dynamic rabbi by the name of Rabbi Moshe Sofer, 
He's known by the name of his books, the Chassam Sofer, which is the acronym for Chidushe Toras Moshe, and he's going to be the subject of tonight's talk. The Chassam Sofer was the leader of the Jews in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the first decades of the 19th century, when the Reform and the Haskalah movements were gaining steam all over Europe, and he played a leading and perhaps the definitive leading role in the battle to counter, to stem the tide of reform in Estella in Europe. Now, this fascinating character had a unique characteristic amongst the rabbis of the era. He had a vision and a foresight to sense that this was not an isolated phenomenon that would go away. Reform and Haskalah was not part of some temporary shift that the winds blew and the winds maybe will blow blow away. Uh, He recognized that this is a real movement that is probably going to stay for a long time, and he believed that it threatened the very foundations of the religion, of tradition, of Torah observance, and the nation. And such a movement with such heft and power to it, it really demanded a very calculated response. So it's interesting, when he dies in 1839, uh, the reform, they're still in their calcification process. Uh, they, uh, their final form, or at least the initial final form, because they're ever-evolving, but the initial final form didn't take shape until the middle of the 1840s. Now, when he dies in 1839, he's already spent 30 or 40 years fighting them, uh, even in their kind of embryonic or infancy and their nascent stages where they're kind of getting off the ground. And it's also interesting that he his approach to the war with Haskell and reform, and by the way, he definitely looked at it as a, as a war, both sides did, but his approach in Hungary was absolutist. He was not willing to compromise. He was not willing to yield an inch. He would fight back and resist and never capitulate to any of these new ideas uh, of reform and Haskalah. And what's you know, a, a sad casualty of such an attitude is that even when there's good ideas and suggestions that are objectively powerful and good, his motto was, Chadash, Asur, Torah, anything new, any innovation, I don't care if it's good, if it's, it doesn't matter, Nothing new is accepted. Everything new is forbidden, and we have to rely on the sages of our past to form our presence. And, you know, of course, to us, that sounds indeed like he's clinging to the past and not willing to look at the future. But I think when you learn more about the situation and the conditions, uh, and especially the conditions of the Jews in Hungary at the time, it seems that this perhaps was the best solution or the best approach for the times. Uh, Perhaps we can conjecture that he felt that even the smallest change or the smallest compromise could potentially open up the floodgates and spiral into larger and larger changes and bigger and bigger and more egregious compromises until everything would be lost. And he also sensed 
that such an attitude could work, and as we see, as it did work, in uh, the particular region that he was in and the particular people that he was trying to influence. So let's learn more about this individual and, and, uh, and learn his story. Rabbi Moshe Sofer was born in Frankfurt in Germany in 1762. The family name was Schreiber. Schreiber means a scribe. And in Hebrew, the scribe is Sofer. That's the name Schreiber or Sofer interchangeable. And like many of the great giants that we've seen, he was a genius of rare ability. Uh, as an example, by the time he was five years old, he already made a seum. He completed Masechah's Beitza, which is one of the tractates of the Talmud, a very difficult one. And he made a public seum, a public celebration, where he spoke for an hour about all his insights, all his chidushim that he developed in that particular book of Talmud. In his youth, he studied under Rabbi Nassan Adler, one of the leading rabbis of Frankfurt at the time, who interestingly, like the byline of his biography would be, he was the teacher of the Chassam Sofer. This is an instance where the student outshined his teacher uh, looking back at uh, their legacies. Uh, also, one of his other teachers was Rabbi Pinchas Halevi Horowitz, who was one of the great Ga'onim, the great Torah giants at the time, very famous for authoring the Sefer Hafla'a on the book of Kesubos and the Sefer Hamikna on the book of Kiddushin. People who study those books of Talmud, these are indispensable guides, indispensable books uh, for it. Now, this great Rabbi Horowitz, uh, he, the, the young Moshe Sofer, made such a name for himself and everyone was buzzing about this new young Torah genius who was destined to be a great Torah leader that he actively recruited him to come study under his tutelage to be able to help contribute towards his education. Of course, Rabbi Sofer became one of the greatest sages of his time, a expert and a voluminous writer in every area of Torah. And in addition, this is important for the angle that we're addressing, uh, in addition to his one-of-a-kind Torah greatness, uh, Rabbi Sofer, he had a great worldly knowledge. He was also educated in, in mathematics, in history, in astronomy by a, uh, a rabbi in Frankfurt, and he also spoke and wrote a superb German. So he had a very broad education, which actually helped him in the mission uh, of his life, or one of the missions of his life, and a critical role that he played in opposition to the Haskalah, he had the tools to enable him to engage in the polemics and in the uh, or oratory uh, capacities needed for such a stance. Rabbi Sofer married in in 1787, and for seven years after his marriage, he was supported by his brother-in-law, and he devoted himself totally to Torah study. By that time, he was already a renowned Torah great. He was heavily pursued for various positions of leadership in the rabbinate or to head perhaps a yeshiva, but he chose to study. Now, that arrangement ended when his brother-in-law, a rabbi Hirsch, underwent f- harsh financial challenges. And 
Rabbi Sofer relented and accepted the position and the role of the rabbi in Dresnitz, where he started also a small yeshiva. It's interesting, uh, the legend has it, that after Rabbi Sofer accepted his position, the financial status of his brother-in-law improved. And his brother told him, I think the Almighty is sending you a message. He really wants you to invest your power and energy for the benefit of the public. So he spends five years in Dresnitz, and he has a community, and he has a yeshiva, and his yeshiva blossoms, and students from the entire region want to come study by him. And before you know it, he has such a big yeshiva that basically he's outgrown the capacity of the town to support it, and he moves on to a bigger town, takes his yeshiva along with him, town of Matersdorf. And finally, in 1806, he became the rabbi of the second most important city in Austro-Hungarian Empire, the city called Pressburg, where he would be at the helm of the, uh, of the Jewish community there as the rabbi until his death uh, 33 years later in 1839. This was a renowned Jewish community. It was led by a great Torah giant by the name of Rav Meshulam Igra. He died, and then uh, Rabbi Sofer was nominated, and he accepted bringing his yeshiva with him to become the rabbi of Pressburg. In Pressburg, he essentially accepted a role, a leading role uh, over all of Hungarian Jewry. And, uh, and the yeshiva, which became known as the Pressburg yeshiva, it became the largest yeshiva in all of Europe. At one point, the student body of this yeshiva numbered over 500 students, which is an astonishing number at a time where yeshivas were very much boutique. There were small operations. And in fact, there's various incarnations of this yeshiva that are still extant today. One of them in the Divas Shol neighborhood of Jerusalem, uh, where my grandparents my grandma, now my grandmother lives right across the street. The uh, modern-day version of the Pressburg Yeshiva still stands. And uh, also interesting and region-specific, the fact that the Yeshiva was formally recognized by the government. In Russia, for example, all the Yeshivas that were in existence were all clandestine. They were all underground. They all had to be hidden from the authorities. Whereas the Austro-Hungarian authorities, including the Emperor Franz Joseph, they were very respectful of the rabbis and had a particular fondness for Rabbi Sofer, and they sanctioned the yeshiva. So in fact, the yeshiva, part of the deal was yeshiva had to have secular studies. And Rabbi Sofer agreed to that, provided that it was not institutionalized. Uh, He said, okay, if the students need, high school students, they need to learn Uh, The government mandates that they learn secular studies. Fine, let's outsource. Let's farm that out to other religious Jews in the neighborhood that could teach them the secular study in a Torah environment, but at least not – it should not be, so to speak, sanctioned by the yeshiva. The yeshiva is only for Torah. There's actually an interesting episode uh, a legend, perhaps, between Rabbi Sofer and the emperor – Franz Joseph, uh, he once came to visit 
the Jewish community in Pressburg on Shabbos. And Rabbi Sofer comes out to greet him. And the emperor, he so happy to meet Rabbi Sofer and to see him again, he pulls out a cigar and gives Rabbi Sofer a cigar and says, here, out of my love for you, here's a cigar. And Rabbi Sofer doesn't know what to do. It's Shabbos. What do you do with a cigar? So he puts the cigar in his pocket. And the emperor, who knows very well that it's Shabbos, he says, well, you're not going to light it? Uh, you're not going to smoke the emperor's cigar? And he responded very cleverly, should the honor given to me by the emperor go up and smoke in ashes? A clever answer uh, to avoid a uh, tricky problem. So this yeshiva had somewhat of government support, and we'll see a little bit more about it in a second. And this eventually became the breeding grounds for Hungarian rabbis. Uh, Indeed, the curriculum in the yeshiva, or aspects of the programming in yeshiva, were tailored to groom great rabbis. So unlike yeshivas today and yeshivas certainly then, they actually taught the students public speaking uh, they had a sense that they were grooming future rabbis, and therefore it is appropriate uh, to give them the skill set they would need to become great rabbis, including public speaking. And also, Rabbi Sofer, he invested that they should not be in total seclusion and isolation from the common folk, from the regular people of the town. So, for example, on Shabbos, they would have the first part of the prayer, they go study, and they would finish the prayer, the Musaf prayer they would do in the main shul along with all the other Balabatim, all, all the other people of the town, so that way they could get, gain a familiarity of what it is like for regular working class business people, people to whom the rabbis need to cater. One of the uh, good things and maybe the bad things about being in a yeshiva is that you get kind of tunnel vision. You're used to people that are dedicated the entire day of studying Torah, of thinking about everything analytically, of of arguing if you see that something is uh, wrong, if you're Havrusa, if you're study mate, if you disagree with him, you start screaming at him. That's what happens in yeshiva. And that's great. It's, it's a certain sharpening of the mind. It's developing intellectual acuity, but also it's probably not the best tactic for a rabbi to have, or a rabbi needs to learn how to moderate and channel that. Exposure to regular people is indeed very beneficial for prospective rabbis and leaders. Now, another thing that made this uh, very made it possible for this yeshiva to groom rabbis was that due to Rabbi Moshe Sofer's stature in the empire and in the eyes of the emperor, the rule was that he was almost like the chief rabbi of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, though not in name, every rabbi had to have a letter, documentation, from the Chassam Sofer stating that he was qualified to be a rabbi. So this gave the Chassam Sofer an effective monopoly to staff rabbis all over the empire. And he chose to take his prized students and insert one of them in every community in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And over the 30-some-odd year, tenure of the Rosh Hashiva, of being the head of the yeshiva in Pressburg, 
He had thousands of students, and many of them became the rabbis of all the communities throughout Central Europe. He would instruct his graduates, you go, you move to the town, you're the rabbi, the first thing you do is you establish a yeshiva. You have a small local branch. You find all the students you can, bring them to you, teach them Torah. If you have an exceptional student, you send him to the mothership. Send him to Pressburg, and we'll craft him into a great rabbi and scholar who will then go and be a leader amongst the men. So effectively, the Chassam Sofer was successful in, in building a vast network of his students who were imbued with his ideology, who followed his motto of Chadash Asur Torah, that they became the official recognized rabbis all over Hungary. Thus, it wasn't just an effort of an individual to combat all these new innovations of the Haskalah and reform. It was an entire network of very talented and very capable rabbis who stood as this defense uh, against these new uh, uh, enlightened Jews and their efforts to try to influence Hungarian Jewry. Everything that was new, all modernity was shunned. You can't change. We have to follow our antecedents in every area. We, of course, we look back at the times where Jews were placed in ghettos, and we think about the fact that now we're free, we can live wherever we want, and that's a great thing. That's our perspective. He wrote about the emancipation that it's actually the opposite. When the government gives freedom to Israel and uplifts them and brings them close, it's a greater danger than what was prior. Because now, due to our multitudes of sin, the entire drive and the ambition, the aspiration of Jews is to try to get closer to the government and to the non-Jews and to go in their ways and follow their laws and tragically abandon Torah and mitzvos willingly. This is not freedom. This is enslavement. Yes, you may be free to live where you are. You're allowed to leave the ghettos, but the impurity of the land is now dominating you. So we see uh, how the Chassam Sofer, he has an entirely different perspective. He's not looking uh, at the innovation of the Haskalah in any positive sense. It's only negative. And uh, his philosophy of total opposition defined every area of his battle. So, for example, the Haskalah, they would try to change customs. He said, every custom of yesteryear, every minug, they're sacrosanct. They're untouchable. They're unalterable. They're fixed. Uh, another example of what the Haskalah would try to do is they, some of them were great Torah scholars on the, in their own right. And they had a flock and they had followers that weren't great Torah scholars. So they could kind of pull wool over their eyes and dupe them and kind of shoehorn their innovations that really are in opposition to Torah and they'll say, well, the Talmud says this, and they'll say, it's found in the books of the Rishonim, 
and they would kind of find a way to uh, finagle their ideas and their embracing of modernity and their softening of observance of halacha, and they would find a way to present that as being in total lockstep with Torah. Says the Chassam Sofer, Chadash Asur Minat. Don't make any new innovations. Don't try to say, oh, I have an idea and I can find it in the Talmud. If it wasn't observed by all our antecedents, if it's not in the Shulchan Aruch, it's, it's prohibited. And he vigorously opposed, for example, we spoke about last week, Moses Mendelssohn. He writes a new commentary of the Torah and a German translation. He vigorously opposed it. And even uh, Rabbi Sofer expressed his desire, though he didn't actually follow this desire, to expel the reformers from the community. Another area where there was tremendous war between these two sides was the structure of the shul. The Jews were the most, quote-unquote, backwards in the eyes of the Haskalah with regards to the synagogue. They looked at it, there was was chaos, there was lack of decorum, and that was the first thing they would try to update in every community that they targeted. So I want to read you a quote from Paul Johnson in The History of the Jews, where he describes this. Uh, Enlightened Jews were ashamed of their traditional services, the dead weight of the past, the lack of intellectual content, the noisy and unseemly manner in which Orthodox Jews prayed. In Protestant countries, for Christians to visit a synagogue was quite fashionable and provoked contempt and pity Hence, Reform Judaism was, in the first place, an attempt to remove the taint of ridicule from Jewish forms of worship. The object was to introduce a seemingly religious state of mind, to focus on edification and devotion. Christian-style sermons were introduced. The reformer, Joseph Wolfe, teacher and community secretary of Dessau, and a devoted admirer of Mendelssohn, took the best German Protestant orators as his models. The Jews learned to preach in this style quickly, as they learned all novelties quickly. quickly. Soon, sermons at the Berlin Temple were so good that Protestant pastors in turn came to listen and learn. Organ music, another powerful feature of German Protestantism, was introduced and choral singing in the European mode. So traditionally, then what was the shul? It was a warm, it was a cozy place. You read the Torah in the middle, and the bima is always in the middle of the shul. But there's kids running around, and there's people handing out candy, and the tables are not orderly and organized, and there's coffee stains everywhere, and people are talking in shul. And Hastala looks at that, and they say, well, that's the, that's the, that's the ghetto juice. And they wanted to modify it, modernize it. And they would argue, well, it's not, it's not fitting for shul to look so disorganized. And they changed some other things. You know, the weddings, which were traditionally held outside of the shul, were moved in like it was in the churches. Of course, when the Chassam Sofer sees that, he says, Chadash Asam Na Torah, it's forbidden. And he said, to go, again, to the opposite extreme as he would do, 
It's against halacha to walk into a shul that does not have a bima in the middle. This is obviously the entirely opposite extreme. Of course, there were to be no organs in the shul, and he went even further. Don't have an organ in your home. Weddings couldn't, can't take place in the, in the sanctuary. There was once a couple. They came to the Chassam Sofer, a very wealthy couple. We want to have a wedding in the sanctuary. It's really nice. It's really romantic. He said, no. They said, well, we're doing it anyhow. He says, okay, if you do that, I'll assure you that your kids won't be Jewish. And indeed, uh, their children, they uh, were baptized. Another area where we see a very vigorous opposition to, uh, to Haskalah. We know that the halacha, all the way from the times of the Talmud, uh, mandates that married women cover their hair outdoors. Again, the Haskalah looks at that and sees that's a relic of Jews of antiquity. So they do away with it. In his classic fashion, he goes to the opposite extreme. And what he did is he revived an ancient custom for women to shave their heads. And the reason why that custom existed was because there were times where Jewish women and Jewish girls uh, were fair game for any marauding non-Jewish person of, of power. No one would defend the Jews, of course. So as a way to dissuade kidnapping, some women had a custom to shave their heads. It's better, yes, it's terrible to shave your head, but it's worse to be kidnapped and raped. Says the Chassam Sofer, well, Chadash Asomonatari can't do anything new. If the tradition is to shave their heads, they got to shave their heads. And that became the custom of Hungarian women now, this was really a means to ensure that they don't go outdoors without their hair covered like the Hastala would want them. But we see how we kind of use this ideology in every area of life to res- – if, if, go- if the Hastala came and said, let's do something new, he said, no, 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 let's turn back the clock and do something old. And this was his motto. He said again and again. And indeed, it's the most – or the idea is the most lasting part of his leg. And he's a very – diverse legacy. I think, you know, we could have spoken about him and gone through his writings. Very voluminous. He wrote in every subject imaginable. There's many books that he wrote. He became the unquestioned halakhic authority of his time. And of course, that is one area of of greatness. Uh, His family became a, a dynasty of great rabbis. You know, we talked that uh, he got married in in 1787, and 25 years later, his wife Sarah died childless in 1812. So he's 50 years old. He doesn't have any children. He's now the rabbi of Pressburg, and he remarries the daughter of Rabbi Akiva Eger. Rabbi Akiva Eger was one of the great Torah giants of all time. Uh, his daughter was recently widowed, her name, incidentally, is also Sarah, and they get married, and uh, he, uh, father, they have together 10 children, uh, seven daughters and three sons, including some great rabbis like Rabbi Avraham Shmuel Binyamin, his son, 
who was his successor as the rabbi of Pressburg, and he's known by the name of his book. If his father was the chasam sofer, which means the sealing of the scribe, he's known as the ketav sofer, the writing of the scribe. Uh, his other son, Rabbi Shimon Sofer, became a rabbi in Krakow, but his sons and his sons-in-law and his grandchildren, a whole legacy of great rabbis and scholars that indeed continues until this day. But I would posit that his most lasting legacy is this mode of opposition to Haskalah. Some have argued that he's really the first Orthodox rabbi. We spoke last time that Orthodoxy is a term that only shows up once there is reform and Haskalah. So Orthodox is like about staying the course the way it always was. He was the first to recognize that there's now some secular shifts in the mindset of the Jewish people that demand a response, and thus he is indeed the first, quote-unquote, orthodox rabbi, but also the ideology of resisting to anything new. If, if we don't know for sure, if we, if we don't have a precedent for it, it, the answer is no. No no until proven otherwise. That still, I, I think, is a very dominant strain in, uh, in many Torah-observant communities. You know, we have the the Art Scroll Talmud, where a monumental effort to translate the entire Talmud into English and to make it understandable. And uh, that was quite controversial. What do you mean? We've had a Talmud for 2,000 years and it's all in Aramaic. How could you think of translating it? New things are suspect. And indeed, if you look at the, introdu- at the first books of the Art Scroll Talmud, you'll see they have like 20 letters of recommendation from every rabbi of, of, of note uh, when that project was kick-started because they recognize this is an uphill battle. You're going against headwinds uh, that are resistant to any innovation, no matter if it's innovation that's going to change Jewish learning for the better. Additionally, Rabbi Sofer's students are the who's who of the great rabbis and scholars of the 19th century. They continued his tolerance. They continued his tradition of zero tolerance to modernity. So, for example, one of his most famous students was known as the Maharam Sheik. So the Maharam Sheik was once asked with regards to a synagogue. We know that there's in uh, Orthodox synagogues, there's always a mechitza, a barrier separating the men and the women during the prayer. Now, how is actually how tall does it be, and what's the material needed? Can you have a glass separation or not? Does it have to be opaque? Regardless, the question was posed to the Maharam Sheikh: Can we have a mechitza, a barrier that has slats in it, so that the women could see and participate in what's happening on the other side? And they told him, if you say no, we're going to open up our, shu- our, our stores on Shabbos and we're out. Uh, it's kind of a hard question to answer because you have to take into account the fact that you don't want to send Jews away from Torah, but you don't want to compromise. So he told him, listen, there's 
value in what you're proposing, and I realize that you kind of raise the ante by saying you're out if the answer is no. But our tradition is to not change the Masora, to not change custom. The custom was to have this kind of barrier. We're not changing it. Whatever you choose to do with that, you do with that. But we're not willing to compromise at all. And I also think that he really personifies a, a great transformative leader. Uh, a great leader is someone who is attuned to the specifics of his people. He's aware of how and where he can exert his influence. And Rabbi Sofer understood that the conditions in Hungary were such that he could pursue such an ambitious agenda and indeed that such a hardline approach could and would work. Now, Hungary, its culture and its language are not European. And therefore, it's more feasible to cut off the Jewish-Hungarian world from the world of Hastala that was transpiring in Germany throughout Europe because there are already these inherent barriers. And therefore, his effort was more about preservation and fending off a, so to speak, external threat as opposed to weeding out a threat that's already present. And also, in Hungary, the the whole stereotype of the ghetto Jew, it didn't really hold water. Part 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 of the argument of of the Haskalah is that the, the Jew is someone who is downtrodden and who is encouraged to remain downtrodden and come to the Haskalah, come see the light. Let, let's get into modernity. Let's upgrade and uh, let's kind of usher in the next phase of life. But the Jews in Hungary, well, they were already neat and they were orderly and they were clean. And the Hassam Sofer himself, he reinforced this point. There was a story once that he spotted a group of his students and they were outside and they weren't dressed cleanly and neatly. The shoes weren't polished. And he walked over to them and he said to them, listen, someone who is very fastidious about how they look, how they present themselves, but ignores his soul, that's like a garbage bin covered in roses. But a yeshiva student a student in Pressburg Yeshiva who cares about his soul, wants to study, wants to grow, but ignores his external, well, then he's like a bunch of flowers, a vase full of beautiful flowers that's placed in the garbage. Who's going to look at that? We have to make sure, says the Chassam Sofer, is that we maintain a, a, a prestigious elegance to our life as Jews and as rabbis. And indeed, that was the attitude of the time, which was yet another defense against the notion that the only way to embrace this new world was by walking away from tradition. And he managed to to parlay all these various factors, the cultural isolation along with the government given monopoly of assigning rabbis, and the fact that he was not trying to convert people to a new ideology, but to preserve an existing one. And he made this movement that indeed 
I would argue, is the most successful movement of its kind that resulted essentially in a community that for the large part did not capitulate, did not fall prey to Haskalah and to reform. We'll see next time that in Germany it was an entirely different atmosphere. Reform, Haskalah, they were already entrenched. There was much less flexibility and a whole new strategy led by a great, innovative Torah giant had to be crafted, and we will learn about that next time.